right, well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43, and we're going to be studying chapter 43, 26 through 34. I have the privilege of only covering nine verses, and poor Andrew last week, he had 25. Uh, One of the purposes of uh, moving to a different class uh, that I saw was a benefit was we're able to make the passages a little smaller. Because I can remember in Bereans, we'd teach through two chapters or, you know, 45 verses or something like that. You really didn't get to dig into the Scripture uh, as much as you'd like. So today we're going to have that opportunity, and we're only going to be covering nine verses. Last week, Andrew guided us through chapter uh, 43, verses 1 through 25. And his message was the lead-in to our passage today. At the end of Andrew's message, we learned that the brothers were at Joseph's house. But why are they there? Let's read a few verses back uh, earlier in chapter 43 so we can kind of set the setting here and make sure there's a good flow in case you were not here last week. Uh, Turn with me to 43, and I'll start in uh, verse 15. It says, So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did, as Joseph said, and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now slip down to verse 23. He said, this man, whoever this steward is, talking about them, and uh, they're having a discussion about why did they have their money in the bags when they left and that kind of thing that Andrew covered in detail last week. But verse 23 says, He said, Be at ease, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. That was actually Joseph speaking there. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the men brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet And he gave their donkeys fodder so that they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard they were to eat a meal there. Okay, so what we've got is the men have met with this steward. They've had a discussion about the last time they were there. Uh, They get Simeon back to them. So all the brothers are together now. And they're waiting uh, for Joseph here. And so... Joseph is going to return in the verses that we cover today. And they have also with them two things. They've got this present or this gift uh, that Jacob suggested that they take. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then they have what really Joseph wanted to see. They have Benjamin, his younger brother. And so we'll talk more about the gift of the present here in a few minutes. But for now, I want to focus in on what takes place when they arrive at Joseph's house for the meal. And let's read the first verse of our passage today. 
and discover the prostration. Genesis 43, 26 reads this. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. They brought into Joseph's house. They're into his house now, and Joseph has just returned home. Okay, think about it for a minute. What was Joseph doing? Was he at the bank? Was he meeting with Pharaoh? We don't know what he was doing. I mean, he could have been uh, just out riding around on his gold-plated chariot, you know, showing it off to the, to the people there. We're not exactly sure what he was doing. He might have been riding around giving everybody that uh, parade wave that, you know, that Rod talks about all the time. Maybe he's showing off his archery skills. Maybe he's showing off his domesticated wild animals. We, we don't know what he was doing. The scriptures are not clear, and it's really not important. All we know is that Joseph comes back, and uh, what he probably smells is the delicious meal that's about to be served. And so let's talk about Another aspect of them meeting Joseph, uh, and that is the obeisance. And you go, what in the world? Let's look at the second half of this verse first. Please note in the second half of the verse where the brothers bow down to Joseph. Folks, in our world today, we meet people... And we show courtesy to people by doing various things. We may shake hands. We may even do a high five. Uh, we may, in some cultures, bow to one another. We may curtsy if you're a woman to important. We hug. We do all these, you know, we even give these air kisses sometimes, you know. They, they call it an air kiss. Well, in Lebanon they don't. They call it a real kiss over there. Because <laughs> they do. And so, in this culture, where the brothers come in, and they're subject to seeing a man as powerful as Joseph was, this is what they do. Face to the floor. This is what's called obeisance. Obeisance <clears throat> is this. It's an act, usually physical, showing dutiful obedience. A supplicant or a person doing the obeisance might perform obeisance touching their face to the ground before humbly asking for help. In other words, they're being obedient to an expected action. You think about it today. If you were to go see the, uh, back when she was alive, the Queen of England, you know, the men would always bow to the Queen of England, the women would always curtsy. You know, that was an expected action. That's what we see here. These brothers are beggars in search of sustenance. They're looking for food. 
they are not in any position to insult anybody. And so they pay obeisance to Joseph by doing that. These were certain protocols that were simply in this situation, they were not optional. If you didn't do this, you would have had uh, probably soldiers taking you away to a place where you may never return from. It's as simple as that. Now, one of the things you have to think about here that's lost in the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph, as you realize, is the second in command of the whole nation of Egypt. The only person above him is Pharaoh. It is the fact that Pharaoh was considered in that country and with those people a god. They really thought that Pharaoh had divine capabilities. And so Joseph being a second in command is pretty much viewed the same way. And so you can understand why these men who were just common sheep herders would be just trembling in his presence and want to make sure that they don't offend him in any way whatsoever. In fact, the Egyptians felt like that uh, Joseph and uh, Pharaoh were divine beings that had sovereignty over life and death, over wealth and poverty, over feast and famine. That is why they did what they did here. But you and I know something different, don't we? We know that there's only one true and living God. And He's the one that, and He is the only one that deserves that kind of respect. God says in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, I am He. And there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver you from my hand. In fact, folks, one day, every soul that has ever lived will pay obeisance to Jesus. Just like that. It's very clear. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you bowed down and put your face on the ground? Probably never. I know I never have to anyone. But we do know this. There will come a day, as it's recorded by Paul in Philippians Philippians 2 says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Paul is merely, when he wrote that, is merely paraphrasing what the prophet Isaiah wrote way back in Isaiah 45, 23. But in our text today, 
the brothers here knew that if they wanted this trip to be successful, if they wanted to get the grain that they needed to continue living, then they best pay obeisance to Joseph, and they do that. So they come in, they bow their faces to the floor in submission, and now we talk about, this is probably what it looked like as they were bowing down to him. And this next we talk about the offering. We now see in, in verse 26 that the brothers brought Joseph a present. Some translations say a gift, an offering, if you will. It was suggested by their father Jacob back in chapter 11 of verse 43. And it's described as Andrew uh, <clears throat> mentioned last week, the best that our land has to offer. It had balm, it had honey, it had aromatic gum, it had myrrh, pistachio, and almond nuts. Now, how ironic is this? How ironic is it? Because these are the same things that the Midianite travelers, traders, were carrying to Egypt when they picked up Joseph. Very same things. These particular items were not common to Egypt. And they were what you and I would refer to as some imported goods. They came in from another place. That's probably what Joseph smelt and or ate on the way down to Egypt when he was taken into captivity. I would imagine the sight of these things brought back some of the worst memories for him. The brothers were probably expecting Joseph to be excited to see these rare things in Egypt. But what happened when he was given the gift? What does it say happened in our scripture? Nothing. Zilch. There's no mention whatsoever. There's no recorded excitement. There's no surprise. There's no joy over it. You know, it was almost as if Joseph had lived with these things most of his life. You know, when my kids come over from the Middle East, the very first thing, even before we pick them up at the airport, before we get to the house, we have to go through Chick-fil-A. Because <laughs> they don't have anything like that over there. They got chicken sandwiches, but they don't. They don't taste very good. And it's the same thing here. These folks knew, Joseph knew what these goods were. One thing you'll notice here by Joseph's lack of reaction to this present is that that should have been a hint to the brothers that this man that they were dealing with, he's different. There's something about him. We just can't put our finger on it. What is it about this guy that seems so familiar but yet different? The first hint that Joseph gave them that they missed was that Joseph was unimpressed with their present. 
Now, let's look at the probing. Genesis 23, we're going to read verses 27 and 28. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is this your old father? Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Verse 28, they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage again. They're not about to offend this guy. First thing we read here is the request. So Joseph wasn't curious about the present or the gift that they brought him, but he was curious about something else. We see here that Joseph wanted to know about their father, his father. Joseph still loved Jacob. He loved him dearly. If you think about it, Jacob took really good care of Joseph, didn't he? In fact, he showed just unusual favoritism towards Joseph while Joseph was with him. And Joseph loved his father very dearly. I'm going to teach you one of the very few uh, Arabic terms that I know. It's called the word Habibi, H-A-B-I-B-I. In Arabic, Habibi comes from the root word hub, H-U-B-B, which translates as love. Habibi is the masculine form, and the feminine form is Habibit. I might refer to Rod as my Habibi, but I'll refer to my wife as my Habibit. In a romantic context, it expresses affection and deep love, but this word really transcends mere words and becomes sort of like a verbal caress or a gentle affirmation of love and connection. The meaning of Habibi is not only confined to romantic relationships, it's also used quite often between friends and family members or even acquaintances to convey warmth, friendliness, or simple politeness. It can express camaraderie, solidarity, and even respect. And the people in the Middle East use that term a lot. You'll see, if you see any text strings in there, there's always Habibi in there a lot. Joseph still dearly loves his Habibi, his father Jacob. And so he asks about his physical condition, but he has to do it cleverly so that to not give away who he really is. So he, here's the response. The brothers, once again, they pay obeisance and they answer very humbly that your servant is well and still alive. Now, please understand, Jacob was no one's servant at this time, but this was the proper response to a man who was considered a god, that everyone was their servant. And that was a relief for Joseph to hear, wasn't it? Since he had already spotted Benjamin in the crowd... As we read in verse 16, 
If you remember from that verse that we read earlier, is when Joseph saw Benjamin in the group of the brothers that he decided to have this meal with them, and that's what prompted this meeting. And with that, we move forward in our story, but what is the hint that Joseph gave them here that they failed to pick up on? Well, the hint is that Joseph showed great interest in their father. Now, if you walked into someone's office and you ask, you know, I don't know, maybe it's your accountant. You go into your accountant's office and all they want to talk about is your father. Wouldn't you think that's weird? You know, you're here to buy grain. And he says, how's your dad doing? Wouldn't you pick up on something that there's a hint there? that this is not an ordinary conversation we're having. I don't know, maybe you've had that before where there was somebody trying to give you a hint and you didn't get it. Debbie gives me lots of hints and I don't pick up on them. <laughs> That's where I'm sleeping in the backyard most of the time. All right, number three is the proclamation. Verse 29, as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin... His mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Well, the story continues on here with the brothers now inside of Joseph's home. And I would imagine if you were inside of Joseph's home, it was a tad bit better than the brothers' home. The brothers are sleeping in tents. They were, you know, truly people who move from place to place. And yet, Joseph lives in a mansion. There was opulence everywhere. Cleanliness, orderliness, precision of architecture. Everything would have looked pristine in Joseph's home. And these dirty sheep herders were in the house of a demigod. It had to be overwhelming for them to step into that kind of opulence, just to see it. Benjamin, since this was his very first visit there, the brothers had been to Egypt before, but Benjamin never has. He's probably in shock, just looking around at, at what he was in, and he was in awe that someone actually lived that way. And so our text records for us the recognizance. Joseph lifted his eyes when they came into the room, and the first thing that catches his eye is his precious little brother who's grown up into a man. Just think about it. The last time Joseph laid eyes on Benjamin, they were teenagers, and they were probably just playing games, chasing goats around, throwing rocks, whatever kids would do in the Middle East at that time. They were just kids. Two brothers of the same mother who had died in childbirth with Benjamin, and they loved one another. The other brothers were out handling the herds, but dad had them 
back there at the house taking good care of them. That's the last time Joseph sees Benjamin until to this time. Joseph might not have seen Benjamin in close to, as some commentators say, in close to 20 years. He hadn't seen him. Have you had that experience where you had a dear loved one that you haven't seen for a long, long, long time? And then you get an opportunity to see him. He had seen him from a distance. We learned that in verse 11. But now he sees him up close, and he sees him personal. But to further protect his true identity, he asks a question, and then we read of the recitation. To throw off the curious-minded brothers in the group, Joseph first asked the uh, brothers, Is this the one? Is this your youngest brother? And you know, Scripture here does not record their answer. It could have been as simple as a nod, or it could have been a yes, or it could have been in in another fashion, but we get the feeling that they affirmed that it was. This is the younger brother. He immediately follows their affirmation with a blessing for Benjamin. Joseph states, May God be gracious to you, my son. But we're sure that he didn't say it. We're pretty sure he didn't say it in the native language. Once again, as we read in the past, detailed dealings with uh, Joseph and the brothers, we can only assume that Joseph probably spoke in the Egyptian dialect. And then there was a translator there to turn that speech or that recitation into Hebrew for them to understand. So again, Joseph gives them a clue, but they don't catch it. And what's the hint here? The hint is that Joseph gives Benjamin a blessing. And so now we go to uh, the preparation Verses 30 and 31. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. What happened here? What what happened with Joseph? At one point... He is in control, he's well composed, and all of a sudden, he's not anymore. I'll tell you what happened. Love is what happened. Joseph, although acting as stoic as Egyptians acted during that time, he could not suppress that overwhelming feeling of love that he had for Benjamin. Of love that he had for his father Jacob. Knowing that Jacob is still alive. And even for his brothers. He just can't. He can't control it. 
Unlike his brothers, Joseph is a much changed man through the experience that he's been through. God has put him through, as Andrew mentioned last week, the refining fire. He's made him into a man for this time. All the experiences Joseph has had that God has brought into his life has made him a man for this very moment. He was fulfilling his God-given destiny. Folks, I can tell you right now, there is no more fulfilling feeling than when you look back on your life and you see how the hand of God has guided you through various life experiences for your good and for His glory. Let me be clear here. There's no accidents in life. Only the divine orchestrations of things happening to fulfill God's purposes on earth. He's sovereign. Everything that happens, we know from Romans 8, 28, that all things happen for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Our God is sovereign over all life and all experiences. Nothing happens outside His control. Now, we may not understand it, and often we don't. But it doesn't make it any less true that God is sovereign over every molecule in this universe. Pastor Tom has often said, if he does not have control over every single molecule, then he is not God. And right here, we see an experience that God had planned for Joseph and his brothers that neither one of them knew ahead of time. And there's two aspects to this experience. The first one is, the release. As we read here, Joseph bolts out of the room. He just runs out of the room because he's about to lose all emotional control. The word used here, stirred, said he was stirred up. It means to grow warm and tender, to be kindled, to become emotionally agitated. Joseph realizes that he can't keep up this ruse that he's performing in front of them. He can't keep it up after seeing his little brother from such a long absence. Benjamin was the one in the family that Joseph loved the dearest. They were of the same mother and same father. The mother that Jacob loved so dearly, Rachel, was their mother. It was simply too much to ask for him to bear that emotion and to still keep his composure. I'm sure you probably had those moments. I know I have. And what we needed was a place to let our emotions loose. Joseph in modern vernacular had what we would call an emotional breakdown. And so he quickly left the room. And found a place to give himself just a very... Good long cry. A cry of joyfulness, of seeing his favorite brother, and of learning of his father's continued life. But 
Joseph also knows he's got a meal that he's got to oversee. And so we see the restoration. Joseph spends the time necessary. Now, we're not told how much time it is. I would have suspected, you know, might have been an hour. We don't know. But it specifically states here that he washed his face. Now, why would he have to do that? Well, you know, when you cry, your face gets all red and puffy and your nose starts running and, you know, all that stuff. But it was a little different for him, too, because it would have really messed up his makeup. And I guess I forgot to educate you on ancient Egyptian male grooming. All upper-class Egyptian men and women wore makeup. I mean, this is recorded in history. The men specifically wore what is referred to as coal, K-O-H-L. And it was a, a material that they used. <clears throat> you and I would recognize it today as mascara and eyeliner. Okay? And the men wore that. That was, a, that was not being effeminate. That was not being, you know, uh, look at me. This was the standard of what people did at that time. And they wore it for three reasons. One was... It would keep the insects away, amazingly. It reduced the reflection of the sun. You know, you have football players that put this black stuff under their eyes. That's not to catch their tears. <laughs> that is to stop the reflection of the sun when they sweat. Okay? Egypt, Egypt is a hot place, temperature-wise. And so they sweat a lot there, and so they use this for that purpose. Okay? And the third thing they believed was it would protect them from some of the evil gods that they believed in. So it was kind of a threefold purpose there. So Joseph composes himself, he washes his face, he probably reapplies his makeup, and he comes back out into the dining room. And he says, serve the meal. So what's the hint here that they didn't catch? The hint is Joseph leaves very quickly to compose himself. You know, the brothers must have noticed that awkward exit. And maybe the beginning of Joseph's tears they saw. But they didn't catch on, did they? You know, I know how Joseph must have felt. You know, when Pastor Rocky's first wife, Sue, died and Debbie and I went to the funeral home to pay our respects, I was okay while we were in the receiving line. But when I got up there for it was my turn to speak to Rocky and I saw how sad he was, I just lost it. But I had no room to run to. So I just cried on Rocky's shoulder. And I'm slobbering all down his suit coat, you know. So I lost control. I, I can appreciate uh, what Joseph felt like. You know, whomever I love, I love deeply. But when I mourn, it's a pitiful sight. 
So Joseph finally pulls it together. And we see the plan of action. 32 through 34. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews. For that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him. The firstborn according to his birthright. And the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. We're going to break these down into three different actions, these verses. First one is the separation. You'll notice that there were three separate eating areas set up for the meal. One for the Egyptians who due to cultural precedence would not dare to dine at some tables with foreigners. They just didn't do it. And especially not a bunch of sheep herders like these Hebrews, as that was considered disgusting and loathsome. Then there would have been one for the Hebrew brothers. And the third table was set up for Joseph. Now, his table would have been elevated above the others due to his rank. And so now they're ready to be served as we read about the seating. The first thing you read here is that Joseph is seated before his brothers. He's not seated before the Egyptians, which would have been very unusual. Normally, Egyptians would have sat with Egyptians. And these other people would have set off in the corner by themselves. And yet Joseph chose to sit right with his brothers. Specifically in front of them. I wonder if the brothers noticed that. And it says to their amazement, they're seated by birthright. Or as you and I would see it. By age. Okay. Who but someone who knows them intimately would know whose birthright was whose. What ages they were. Did they notice that? I don't think they did. But they were amazed that they were seated the way that they were. Our text says they looked at one another in amazement. Well, did they believe that Joseph was clairvoyant? Did he truly have divine powers and he could look at them and say, okay, you're the oldest, then the next, then the next, then the next? Well, one commentator wrote this. This may have been the way they ate with Jacob. And it was not unusual for people to sit in a particular order around the table by birthright with the Hebrews. So this may have been the way they ate with Jacob, but then who would know that except someone who had eaten with them? And yet the light bulb has not clicked on yet. I'm beginning to believe these guys are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. They're not getting it. 
So you've got the separation of the tables. You've got the setting, how they're sitting around the table by age. What's next? It's the servings. In our last verse today, it records that he, meaning Joseph, took the portions from his own table, which was full to overflowing, and gave each of them portions. And for Benjamin, he gave them five times the portion that he gave to the others. And what was their reaction? They took the food and they ate it. They feasted on it. It's probably the best meal they've ever had. And yet no one was suspicious of who this man was. So what were the hints that they, we see in these verses? The hint is Joseph sets up the seating and the servings. So who exactly is this man they're thinking well, he's more to them than they realize. He knows them intimately. And they know him not at all. Think about it that way. I know of another relationship just like that, and that's what I want to end this message on. And that relationship involves all of you and me. Let's talk about it as we get to the application to our lives. Just like Joseph was dropping hints with his brothers, God gives us hints all the time that he's present in our lives. He gives evidence. Back in the 1990s when Debbie and I worked in youth work, we would end up taking the youth group to uh, concerts, Christian rock concerts. And one of the ones we went to was Jeff Moore in the Distance. How many of you have ever heard of Jeff Moore in the Distance? Okay. 1990s. Some of you guys were not born <laughs> when, Jeff, when Jeff Moore in the Distance was popular. They wrote a song called The Evidence of God, and I just want to read to you some of the lyrics of that. It starts off by saying, I believe that William Shakespeare lived, though we never met. Because when I was 17, I read Romeo and Juliet. And I believe there was a man whose name was Michelangelo, because he left his mark in a chapel in the heart of Rome. Every mountain, every valley, your creation, it surrounds me. Every breath I breathe, every heartbeat, every sunrise that you give to me, these and so much more tell a story we cannot ignore. It's the evidence of God. As the potter shapes his clay... He leaves evidence. And our Father does the same. His creation is evidence. That's how we can believe in a God we cannot see or hear or touch. If we will open our eyes, we'll see His work is all around us. Do you ever notice that God is near to you? 
Do you feel His presence in your life? You know, He gives us family and He gives us friends who do for us today what Jesus Himself personally will do for us one day. You see, today God gives love and He gives hugs through His children. He gives encouragement. He gives us exhortation. He shows us kindness through other believers. But who's, direct, who's the directing force of these kindnesses? Who's prompting those friends to come alongside you? It's your Creator. The Bible is so clear that we are followers of Jesus Christ and that we are to love one another. Love one another. Remember, we love because what? He first loved us. We're to care for one another. We're to grieve with those who grieve. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. And what would make us do those things? It's our love that we have for others. Yes, our beloved God is dropping hints all the time that He's ever present with us. And yet we often, like Joseph's brothers, we don't recognize the hints because we're too busy concentrating our eyes on ourselves. We think we're all alone in our struggle with sin. We're all alone with our sadness, with our defeat, with our disappointment. And yet we have at our disposal all that we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and back on Jesus. We have the family of God who loves us dearly. We're Habibis. Folks, we're to love one another, care for one another, be hospitable to one another. And that extends even to the believing stranger, as is recorded in Hebrews 13, where it says that some have entertained angels and not known that. And the only way that we can be hospitable to strangers, like in Hebrews 13, is through the love that you and I should have for the brethren your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How much do you love the brethren? If a brother or sister in Christ has sinned against you, are we willing, are we able, are we eager to forgive them? I pray we are because Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And just like Joseph forgave his brothers through the power of love in our passage today, our application is that we can do the same. Let me read for you as I end Philippians 2. And I'm going to start in verse 1. I hope you take this to heart. If you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any 
consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. You know, Joseph had it all. He was probably the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, apart from Pharaoh. And yet, he didn't have that selfishness and empty conceit. He was looking out for the interest of others always. May you and I do that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which just touches our hearts, impacts upon us how wonderfully gracious you are to us, how you have shared so much of your love with us by surrounding us by your family. I pray that we will continue to look to others, not as objects that we can make use of, but as ways that we can serve. Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give a ransom, his life a ransom for many. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.